Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 286. Today is Sunday the 22nd of July, 2018, and this interview is with Ross Harper, with a Master's in Neuroscience and a PhD in Computational Neuroscience, Ross is founder and CEO of Limbic AI, a recent startup building a robust data set and using AI to infer the emotional state of the user who's wearing an appropriate wearable device from his or her heartbeat. In this conversation, we discuss the opportunities that reading the heartbeat could do for many different businesses. We look at the key to building a business on the basis of AI, the state of the art of understanding emotions via the different methods, as well as the courses and sources for people interested in knowing more about AI. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. So, Ross Harper, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here because... Um, I was reading a newsletter from Amelia Kampman, and um, out of the blue, I, I saw Limbic AI, and I was immediately intrigued. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Ross, and what is Limbic AI? Um, so I finished my PhD in computational neuroscience here in London um, last year. Before that, I was doing my master's in mathematical modeling at UCL. And then before that, I did um, uh, my undergraduate degree in just straight biological neuroscience at Cambridge. Um, having got to the end of my PhD, uh, I had a decision to make about whether or not I was going to stay in academia or try my hand in industry, as, as it's called, this big umbrella term. Um, and I decided to choose the latter, largely because there are a lot of exciting opportunities to create interesting research projects and to run interesting research projects just um, in a business capacity in a way that um, was less common beforehand. So it's moving from rather the theoretical space that academia often is into a much more practical element and you can find a lot of research through the practice. There's absolutely a lot more applied um, uh, science in industry than academia, I would agree with that statement. Um, But I suppose, actually, my point is that um, there's still a lot of theoretical work going on um, in industry and in the commercial sector. Um, And the difference is that universities no longer have the monopoly on blue sky research, and some of the best work is coming out of companies. So if I understand, your trifecta of educational degrees seems to go from biology to quant, uh, or at least um, is, that, is that a fair establishment? And then it makes me think that neural networks and neural is, is what you're all about. Absolutely. So um, my uh, completely uh, fortuitous, no planning went to an, into it um, career path, uh, to a degree follows um, a bit of the sort of evolution of AI, where a lot of work goes into understanding how the human, human brain works as an exemplar of an intelligent system. And then we take these principles and we apply them to um, artificial agents. And so, as, as you say, neural networks are one such uh, what we call machine learning approach. And it's inspired entirely by um, how the human visual system is set up in terms of uh, connectivity and hierarchy. 
I'm a lot older than you are, Ross, and I wonder how, if I were your age or, you know, starting up in life, one gets into AI. I mean, let's say you fell into it, or at least you followed the AI path according to the evolution of AI, and that's your retroactive story. I think you probably didn't do it intentionally. How, how, does, how does one get into AI? Do you, do you have any recommendations for people who are listening who are saying, I wanna, no matter what their age is, I want to get into AI? What kind of paths are there out there? Yeah, um, so I'm sure a lot of people will disagree or have their own opinion on this. Um, mine is that uh, to get into AI, first thing you need to have an understanding of what this field is. So you need to have an inherent interest such that you've been reading uh, whatever high-concept accessible articles are out there just to get a feel for exactly what the space involves and what the different areas are, like any new subject that you want to get, you know, cut your teeth on. Um, but then when it comes to actually practising AI, um, a fundamental uh, knowledge and education in statistics is quite important. Um, almost all the machine learning tools, which are, is the toolbox for AI, essentially, um, require uh, a, an appreciation and understanding for statistical and probabilistic um, maths. So statistics, I think, is, is fundamental. And then there are plenty of um, online courses. That's absolutely how I would approach it and indeed um, used to support my education. Um, there are plenty of um, courses. So there's a website called Coursera, um, Udemy, Code Academy. Um, lots of them have an introduction to what they call data science, which is, again, there's a lot of different ways of uh, referring to this field, but data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, they all fall in, into the same sort of sphere. To what extent is coding a necessary ingredient? Understanding data is one, understanding the biology of the brain is another, I'm getting. Is coding a necessary component? Um, absolutely. Uh, for the reason that, so there is a, a, a great neuroscientist called um, David Ma, and he has uh, something called the tri-level hypothesis, and he says any complex system can be understood in three main ways. And uh, you've got um, various different levels, but the final level is what he calls an implementational level. And uh, this involves actually how the, the complex system is implemented. So in a human brain, um, that would be neurons, biological cells firing their connectivity. Um, but in order to implement an artificial intelligence, an artificially intelligent system, you really do need to give it life in the form of, of code because there are multiple calculations that need to be carried out very quickly. And computers are the only real only way we can do this so we need to write the um, implementation for a computer it's all very well and good to have the model existing on a piece of paper but for it to actually do something compute needs to occur for the neanderthal that i am uh, what coding is the principal language for artificial intelligence or are all codes applicable uh, not all codes are um, applicable. What you're looking for are the uh, statistical programming languages, of which um, a language called R, like the alphabetic letter, R, is um, very, very popular. MATLAB in academia is very popular. Um, but I would say the most popular for machine learning at the moment is Python. 
and Python is an open source uh, programming language. Um, it's got great libraries for statistical programming, and there's one um, library of, of uh, functions that have been written uh, called t- um, TensorFlow. Oh, yeah. um, I don't know if you've come across TensorFlow, and this is uh, Google's library for implementing a lot of machine learning models. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, Python, because TensorFlow was written in Python, um, is... I would say the most popular, but R is doing very well, MATLAB is doing very well, um, the statistical programming languages are what you need. All right, let's get into Limbic AI, which is the reason why I wanted to get in touch with you. So give us a little bit of an understanding of what is Limbic AI. Limbic AI is uh, my startup, we're a young London-based um, AI startup, and what we're doing in short is we're building uh, Software that can detect the a user's emotional state from the heart data collected by their wearable device, like the Apple Watch, let's say. Um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build emotion recognition systems so that we can provide AI and digital products with an ability to understand the psychological state of their users and adjust their behavior accordingly. So our grand vision is to build emotional intelligence into artificial intelligence which is exactly why I wanted to speak to you, Ross. Give us an example of how a company would be using your services, and maybe you could tell us about one or two of your clients who are using it. Sure. So I suppose there's two ways to look at this. There's the long-term grand vision, how could it be used and where we're heading, and there's the short-term, how could it be implemented today. So I'll start with the long-term. The long term is if we have digital products which are built on a fundamental understanding of how the user is feeling, what their emotional state is, then we build a means, a new way of interfacing with our computers essentially, a means for human-computer interaction to be as natural as human-human interaction. And so this will add new dimensions to, uh, to tests like the Turing test. Um, it could allow artificial intelligence to learn based on our pleasure and displeasure rather than explicit instruction. Um, And also it could lead to automation in job sectors, which today we believe require an empathetic component, nursing, childcare. These are spaces that we don't really talk about in the automation debate. Um, And the reason being we, we think that empathy is not something that can be digitized. Um, we think that if we, are, we have built emotion recognition systems and AI and digital products are able to adjust their behaviors and make decisions based on the psychological state of those around them, that we actually can automate in these uh, previously unthought of spaces. So that's our long-term grand vision. Sounds very sci-fi. Reeling it in a little bit. Uh, in the short term, um, emotion recognition systems like the kind that we're building at Limbic Um, stand to augment digital products. So think of content recommendation algorithms, the type of thing that um, allow Netflix to suggest what TV show you might want to watch. The way they work at the moment is by looking at your search history and making an educated guess on what you might want to watch now based on what you have watched in the past. But knowing also your current mood and the current frame of mind you're in can also play into that recommendation and allow, allow for better content recommendation. So augmenting these types of algorithms through having an emotional input signal is one thing. The other thing is um, health monitoring. So uh, our existing clients uh, are largely in lifestyle and well-being apps, 
think meditation uh, habit tracking, menstruation tracking, things like this. And being able to predict the user's emotional state is very useful to these apps because it allows um, them to measure the success of any sort of a well-being journey, um, to quantify the output of your efforts to improve well-being, um, and can also lead to things as simple as um, timing the app notifications for moments when the user's psychological state is more receptive to the message of the notification. So if you're a meditation app, detecting that the user has entered a period of high stress might be the time to recommend a five-minute meditation session rather than just this emotionally dumb approach of everybody gets a notification at 3 p.m. I want to go back to one thing you said, Ross, and then we'll get back to the nearer term, per se, as you say. You, you said you can't... You, we believe we can't digitize empathy. So what I was in thinking about that is that if someone is typing and adds a lot of emoticons and or starts typing on the keyboard, so their behavior is what you're saying these other devices do. They, they track your clicking. They might track your what you've looked at in the past. So they're going to track your behavior. But is it not possible to detect through behavior one's level of emotion? Yes, absolutely. So um, the way Limbic works is by trying to detect the emotional state of a user from their heartbeat. But you could build an emotion recognition system that detects user emotional state from whether they're smiling or not, if you have a camera. Um, whether the tone of voice changes if, you're, if they're speaking into a microphone. And indeed, if they are um, uh, typing or uh, clicking, yeah, clicking on a website and the speed with which their cursor moves. These are other behaviours that you can use, proxies that you can use to try and infer the psychologi- psychological state. Indeed, there are, um, you know, the emotion recognition system of the future will likely include all these different input streams. All right, so now talking more specifically about utilisation today, when you're looking at detecting someone's emotion through the heartbeat something I was not aware of, and you, you were telling me about this before we started recording, is that there's a much more complex, far more rich amount that you can detect from a heartbeat than just the heart rate. Absolutely. So I think the reason I'm saying heartbeat is because heart rate is a very, very specific metric that you can get from the heartbeat signal. Rate is the number of beats that um, occur within a given interval. So when we talk about beats per minute, or BPM, which is the uh, unit of heart rate, typically, um, we're talking about, in a minute interval, how many beats occurred. But you are losing a lot of information. It's a very interesting metric, sure, but you lose a lot of information. It's just one metric you can pull out of the heartbeat series. For example, the regularity of the, of the signal, um, the information content of the signal, the frequency components or the spectral components of that signal. You can break a heartbeat um, time series into hundreds of different metrics beyond just heart rate. And so um, when we do emotion recognition from, from these data, what we're doing is we are breaking the signal down into lots of different component pieces and we are using this composite representation and machine learning to um, detect patterns and work out whether or not somebody's in a joyful or an angry state of being. Yeah, as we were saying before, there are six different emotions which you are looking to be able to detect you know, in each person. And tell us a little bit where you are on that journey. 
Yeah, so um, so as you say, there are six. Um, this is contentious, so uh, we rely on psychology and psychologists to come up with theoretical frameworks for emotions, and, and this by no means solved. There is disagreement. Um, there is a broad consensus on this concept of six basic emotions, um, and they are joy, uh, sadness, fear, anger, disgust, and surprise. And uh, the belief, the po- uh, proposed um, idea is that these six core emotions, uh, these six basic emotions, uh, lay the foundations for more complicated, nuanced, composite emotions. Um, but within this uh, field of sort of emotion AI, it's a great place to start um, in this sort of very raw, um, differentiable emotional states. And so in a lab setting we can classify these um, different emotional states with accuracies of 90% and above. Um, the challenge of what we're doing at Limbic is being able to perform the same classification at similar accuracies with data collected out in the real world while people are moving around. It's inherently noisier and we're outside of the lab. Um, but the same principles apply, the same models will be used, but there will just be a difference in the sort of um, data flow and the processing that occurs. So just before we get into the application sense, the, there's this noise you're telling, telling us about, but uh, y- y- your ability to use an Apple Watch in order to detect the subtlety between anger and sadness or maybe anger and disgust, which are three of the negative sides of these emotions. What, what devices do we need to get <laughs> strapped into in order to help uh, the system recognize what we are feeling? Yeah, so um, Limbic is based on and built on top of the, uh, the wearable revolution. You know, we could not exist and this would not be a viable approach to building emotion recognition systems if we didn't have physiological data like heartbeat. Um, As we've seen over the last few years, personal computing is slowly moving out of the pocket and onto the body. And with this comes the opportunity to monitor aspects of our biology. A very, very common sensor that you find in smartwatches today is something called a PPG sensor. It's an optical heartbeat monitor. Um, And you find them in the Apple Watch, you find them in the Fitbit, you find them in Garmin and Polar wearables. And so essentially what we need is this PPG sensor as an optical heartbeat sensor, and then we build our algorithms on top of this. So rather than the beats per minute, just the rate, uh, which is what I see as a regular punter use my Apple Watch, with the exact same uh, optical, the BP, the B, BPG, whatever it is, you're, you would be able to then extract different emotional states? That's the goal, and that's kind of the innovation of Limbic. Um, we, we've done a lot of work with these commercially available wearables in our lab and really sort of got in there and, you know, hacked them and seen what's coming off them, the quality of the data. Um, it also requires uh, um, good signal processing to be able to accommodate slightly lower quality data than you might get in a clinical setting. Um, but this is, these are all the challenges that we sort of we uh, take with enthusiasm. Um, but you're correct that um, the heart rate metric that comes up is the usual metric. You have to ask yourself where this comes from. How do you get heart rate? 
Um, the answer is you have this optical heartbeat sensor, which is detecting different beats and then counting them up and giving you the uh, number of, the, of beats that it, it detected. But it had to be able to detect each beat in order to count them. You see? So um, actually you have heartbeat monitors, even though they're only telling you what your heart rate is. Mm. There's more to the signal. They're just only giving you a little bit of it. As I listen to you, I, I, and I think about the six emotions naturally, but I must imagine there are many pathologies that are also pickable, upable. And to what extent are you looking in the medical field as opposed to wellness? <clears throat> um, we've, we've obviously got our eyes on the medical field because every startup is looking for a big problem to solve. And few problems are bigger um, at the moment than the current um, sort of scourge of mental health um, issues. Um, we would be heavily, heavily interested in applications of emotion recognition technology of the kind that we propose to uh, monitoring and tracking mental health and being a sort of um, decision support for clinicians. It's not where we're choosing to start because there is a certain um, threshold of accuracy um, and there are uh, uh, regulations and hoops that we quite rightly need to jump through but makes it a challenge to enter the space as a startup um, quicker and better to gain data and improve your product in a more forgiving space where the uh, consequences of being a few percent lower in accuracy are not catastrophic mm -hmm. and then move into the clinical sphere. I mean, and so, I mean, my, while I was listening to you, I was thinking, gosh, wouldn't it be great if someone who was classified uh, with a mental health illness and had a license to wear, wear a gun in the States, maybe we could use that over there. But then... Uh, another thing I was thinking about was the ability to use your technologies by for in lie detection and and so it's 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 phenomenal the amount of things you could be doing so I'm having to guess that being focused is going to be one of the keys to making your limbic AI successful how do you react to that yeah great question focus is is absolutely what's what's needed um but it's, it's focus on what? Um, Limbic is not building any of these solutions. We're not building the smart, the emotionally intelligent meditation app. We're not building the video game which adjusts its um, difficulty level according to your stress levels. We are trying to enable these products into existence by um, working on the core emotion detection engine that can power both these different products. And so the same technology needs to power both those products and we are not building those end products we're just building so our focus is on the core technology this emotion recognition engine um, which we then um, look to make available across different sectors so health health and well-being um, entertainment consumer electronics even uh, insurance um, it's the same product being applied to different verticals well, that sounds fascinating. And so your business model is essentially business to business. How do you price such uh, an item? It just seemed, you know, for me, it's very obscure. Uh, you know, it's like, well, it's 100 for one emotion. It's 150 for two. Yeah. Um, Pricing is really, really challenging when you are um, a horizontal um, product rather than a vertical specific product. Because the way to price effectively is to uh, work out the value that you are adding and then take some cut.
from that. And then it's win-win. You're adding value and you're taking some amount and it's a, an economically sensible decision so long as the numbers balance. Um, but the amount of value that Limbic adds will be vertical-specific. The amount of value that we add for a timed in-app notification will be different from the amount of value we could perhaps bring Netflix through better content recommendation. And so having universal pricing is a real challenge and something we're actually trying to work out at the moment. I don't have a good answer for you. What I would say is take inspiration from those um, business models that do something similar to us. So um, have you, do you know uh, Amazon Web Services? Of course, AWS. AWS, yeah. Um, there's a, one of their services is AWS Lambda, which has um, really revolutionized um, uh, startups. You know, it's really easy to knock up a cloud compute um, product now due to AWS Lambda. And the way you pay them is through uh, compute time, uh, the amount of uh, time that you are using their services for. And uh, the, the value that they bring will be very different depending on the sector that's using them. They are an enabling technology. But um, they've got a decent system where if you need to use them a lot, you'll have to pay them more. And if you don't, you can pay them less. Looking at your technology, I have to imagine IP or intellectual property is a, a true consideration in terms of getting your valuation. So how does one go about protecting what you're doing? And is it, is it, a, is it a question of being secretive and, and or laying down patents? How... How open do you feel you can be in your world? Um, more open than people would expect, I think. I mean, you have to remember I've come from academia where we uh, judged on the reproducibility of what we do. And so we publish. That's how we, you know, gain credibility. Um, it's slightly different because uh, you do in the business um, set to have a you know, secret source that gives you an edge and you, you want to kind of maintain that. Um, patent applications help, and we're obviously pursuing these. Um, and uh, in the machine learning um, age, one of the biggest defensibility pieces um, is your data set. So, for example, Google is so good at some of the things they do not because what they do is uh, secret. They could tell you exactly how they're doing it, but you won't be able to recreate it because you won't be able to train your machine learning algorithms without the same data set that they've got. And so one of Limbic's defensibility components is the fact that we are acquiring a very specific data set that allows us to do what we're doing, and we think it's already the largest in the world. And so as that grows, we maintain superiority in the service that we can provide compared to any new competitors. Inherent in that data set then, Ross, is a, an element of learning. So you get a bigger and bigger data set, but it's your ability to have a machine that knows how to learn from that data set that that's, that's the value? Yeah, absolutely. So if we sort of take it back to first principles here, um, machine learning, uh, as an oversimplification, one, one goal of machine learning is to map some input to some output. Um, such that given just the input, it can accurately predict the output. Um, so in this case, the input is the heartbeat signal. The output is the emotional state. Now, we want to be able to predict the emotional state from just the heartbeat signal. But to first train these algorithms to do the mapping, we need to have examples of input and output so that we can work, so we can do the training. And getting a data set of emotionally labeled heartbeat data is a challenge 
And that's the defensibility. And if you've got thousands and thousands um, of examples of these input-output pairs, then you're able to train a machine learning algorithm to do the mapping so that when you've only got um, the the heartbeat and you don't know what the emotional state is, your algorithms are better at predicting than other people's. So now let's say I'm a client and I'm using it Limbic AI. I have a series of people I'm monitoring. To what extent is the challenge of using that material in real time uh, quite transformational for the clients you're working with or do you anticipate will be a significant challenge for, for customers? In other words, when I am, I'm wearing the heartbeat, uh, my, I understand that I'm emitting a certain emotion, then the video game or the, the, the service I'm, I'm using in front of me needs to adapt immediately. So that real-time adjustment to the individual you're, that you're focused on, how easy is that for the companies you're working with? So just to clarify, the question is, uh, how easy is it for the companies to build a system which adjusts to changes in emotional state given that we have provided that information on a change in emotional state. And, and it's happening in real time. Yeah, um, challenging, but I mean, real time is uh, a, a difficult concept. Is, is second resolution real time or is it millisecond resolution or 10 seconds, you know? Um, it's really about whether or not um, quick enough to make sure that there's uh, it. It, it has a relevant impact there and then in the moment. So if I took a video game, for example, I might say, uh, he's getting more stressed, maybe the next level I'll adjust, as opposed to, I'm going to put out a spooky monster to come out right yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. These are all the sorts of uh, um, sort of imaginative ways you could use the signal. Um, I mean, um, think about how we interact with other human beings um, and... We, we're talking with them and then halfway through a conversation we detect a change in their emotional state, they're getting irate. And now we have a decision to make as an intelligent agent about whether or not we're going to press on with our um, current line of inquiry or whether we're going to change tack. And what is it? What are our goals and motives? What do we hope to get out of this conversation? How does their change in, in state from okay to irate affect this? Um, and uh, that doesn't necessarily need millisecond resolution. You know, you can, you can have a similar system in about 10-second resolution. And last question, Ross, is you, you've done so much research on this, and it's just purely out of personal curiosity. To what extent do these emotional configurations, in other words, the re- relationship between a heart uh, beat and a, an emotion cross ages, cross cultures... Is there any, uh, I mean, so in other words, you know, some countries you see anger being expressed differently, at least. And I'm thinking that, you know, maybe a baby has certain more dinosauric, I can't remember the term, you know, um, in your brain, uh, not limbic versions of emotion. What are the types of, you know, universality do we have to these emotions and the relationship with your heartbeat? Mm. Uh, it's a great question. It's one that we're trying to find out, to be honest with you. It's a, it's a line of research. Um, there is the potential for um, greater commonality between emotional responses across cultures through heartbeat-based approaches. You identified um, anger being expressed differently. Um, a smile can mean something depending on whether you're in a Chinese culture or a Western culture. Um, indeed, it does. And... Uh, um, an emotion recognition system built on a video camera 
um, will struggle with this aspect. Um, but the heartbeat is, uh, has the potential, at least, to be more robust across cultures. And that's what we're driving into. That's one of the reasons we're focused on this physiology-based approach. Um, and I, I guess uh, I'll get back to you with the answer. Brilliant. Well, I, I'm fascinated by that, Russ. So give us um, just one or two examples of things that you use and read to stay up to date with someone who's so involved in this. So give us an inside scoop onto how Ross stays up to date. Inside scoop on how I stay up to date is yeah. probably really, really bad academic practice. But um, I really rate... Uh, uh, blogging platforms like Medium. Uh, it's a great way for um, people uh, in machine learning and in this space to write short opinion pieces on the latest um, developments that they are privy to and that they are experts in. Uh, and so I have a weekly digest that just constantly updates me with keyword associations like machine learning, artificial intelligence, the specific models that I'm interested in, how they're developing. Uh, beyond that, um, I also have uh, newsletters, um, based on all the big academic journals. So think Nature, think um, Science, uh, um, and sort of the more computational journals as well. And uh, just, um, I, I read the headlines. If something takes my interest, I dive into it. Well, I must imagine you have a, an un, unsatiable thirst. So, uh, Ross, how can someone get in touch with you or, or figure out more about Limbic AI? Yeah, um, so we have a website. We're a startup, so it's quite Spartan at the moment, but it's undergoing a, 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 a renovation. Um, it's called uh, limbic.ai, so quite easy to remember. Um, and our email address is hello at limbic.ai. Brilliant. Ross, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing, as you said, some you know maybe darkest secrets, but it was really a pleasure to listen to you, and I learned a lot along the way. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. You mention in your lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form As long as you would feel warm Wrapped in canvas, hold me tightly Slowly we would paint a lover's portrait With all your favorite shades Joe.
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.